So good morning and welcome. I am Marcia, one of the other pastors here on staff. And as Pastor John said, we have been in a summer message series called Stories Old and New. And as you know, we are uh, the new stories have been people from our congregation sharing ways God is working in their lives today. And the old stories are stories from the Old Testament. And because a lot of our kids are in with us this summer, uh, we've been using the Jesus Storybook Bible as um, our, our readings of the text. And it's also just a great way for us as adults to sometimes hear familiar stories in fresh new ways and um, to see the thread of Jesus all through the Old Testament. Um, so Randy's going to read our story for us today. Well, children of God, it's story time. This is an adaptation from the book of uh, 1 Samuel, uh, 16th chapter. I've had just a little bit of practice with this. God's people had a new land. Now they wanted a king. But God is your king, Samuel told them. He is the one who looks after you the best. We want a real king, they said. One we can see. God knew that a king might not be kind to his people or look after them as well as he would. But God's people didn't care. They wanted a king, and they wanted him now. So God gave him a king. He was called Saul, and he seemed like a good king at first, But he became proud and stopped listening to God. He didn't obey God or love God with his whole heart. Saul can't help me with my plan, God said. I need a king who loves me and will teach my people to love me. I need a true king. And God had just the one in mind. Go to Bethlehem, God told Samuel you will find the new king there. By the way, it was Samuel's job to listen to God and to tell people what God said. So Samuel went to the little town of Bethlehem and God told Samuel to go to Jesse's house. God was going to choose one of Jesse's sons to be the new king. And Jesse had seven strong sons. Now in those days, if you were going to be king... You didn't have to be the richest or the smartest, although that was nice. You had to look like a king, which meant you needed to be the tallest and the strongest. So you would carry the longest swords and biggest armor and defeat everyone. And it didn't hurt to be handsome either. Samuel asked Jesse to bring him each son in turn. So Jesse brought the oldest, tallest, strongest son. This must be the new king, Samuel thought. He looks like a king, but God didn't choose him. You're thinking about what he looks on the outside, God told Samuel, but I'm looking at his heart, what he's like in the inside. So Jesse showed Samuel his next oldest and tallest and strongest son, but God didn't choose him either. In fact, God didn't choose any of the seven sons. Samuel said, is that it? Jesse laughed. Oh, well, well, there's this youngest one, but he's just the weakling of the family. 
He's only teeny. Bring him, said Samuel. Jesse's youngest son came running up, and God spoke quietly to Samuel. This is the one. His name was David. He has a heart like mine, God said. It's full of love. He will help me with my secret rescue plan. And one of his children's children's children will be the king. And that king will rule the world forever. Samuel anointed David with oil, which was a special way back then to show that you are God's chosen king. You will be the new king one day, Samuel told him. And sure enough, when he grew up, David became king. God chose David to become king because God was getting his people ready for an even greater king who was coming. And one day, many years later, God would say again, go to Bethlehem. You'll find the new king there. And there, one starry night in Bethlehem, in the town of David, three wise men would find him. So I was a child of the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> some of you are. Those were the days of watching Cosby on Thursday nights, Smurfs on Saturday mornings, tracking Carmen Sandiego on the Apple IIe, and perfecting the moonwalk. Those were also the days of jelly shoes, very puffy sleeves, and perms that made us look a little bit like poodles. Now, if you are too young to remember these glory days, I have a special treat for you today. Go ahead and, yeah. Yes, you're welcome, you're welcome. So when I showed this picture to my kids, this is my eighth grade picture, Luke said, wow, mom, you were interesting back then. Lauren said, well, I guess Luke and I get our good looks from dad. The 80s were also a time that we learned a lot about politics in school. We knew all about the Cold War with Russia, and we were the generation that watched as the Berlin Wall came down. Now, our teachers in middle school decided that in the spirit of learning the principles of democracy, we should hold elections for student council president. And they asked me to run. Now, I wasn't so sure about this, mostly because I really didn't want to give a speech in front of the whole middle school. But I thought about it and decided I actually had some ideas for the school, and so I agreed. But what I didn't know yet is that my opponent would be Alex, the most popular kid in the school. Now, Alex had everything. He was tall, good-looking, smart, funny, and very confident in himself. Now, we both campaigned hard, and we both had some good ideas and I think some decent leadership skills. And so I started to think, well, maybe this race will actually be close until the day of the election. I got up and I gave my speech, and as I went to sit back down and Alex came to the podium, the entire student body was shouting, 
Alex, Alex, Alex. Now, I know some of you right now are cringing and feeling bad for me, but it was okay. I realized something important in that moment, though. I realized that I didn't have what Alex had. I didn't have the popularity. I didn't have the charisma. He even kind of looked presidential. And he kept making big promises about making middle school great again. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding, kidding, okay, I know, (laughs) all right. Now don't worry, really, although that day was hard, it was character building, as my mom always said, to lose sometimes. And Alex continued to be our class president all the way through high school, so he now gets stuck planning our reunions. (laughs) Now our story today involves a different kind of election. There was only one voter, Samuel, and his job was to anoint the new king. But before we get to the election, I want to just give you some important background here. This was a really critical time for the tribes of Israel. I'm going to kind of show here on the map in a second. So they are now settled in the promised land, and they're kind of establishing farms and communities. But if you can see here, okay, so this orange is Israel. But they are totally surrounded. So here's the Philistines, here's the Amalekites. Here's Moab, Edom, Ammon. So they do not feel safe because they are completely surrounded by other nations. Now, for many years, Israel had been governed only by God and by priests who were kind of the intermediaries between God and the people. Samuel um, was a priest. He was also something known as a judge. Now, in the time that God was kind of governing the tribes, At times, he would call on something called a judge, which was a person who would kind of step up in a time of military crisis to kind of help. Um, So Samuel is both. He's a judge. He actually was the last judge, and he's a priest. So he's a really big deal, like as big a deal as Moses, really. But Samuel is getting on in age, and the people are getting more and more nervous about all these nations around them. And so they start saying to Samuel, we want a king. They wanted to be like the other nations who had kings. They also, really, what they were looking for was national security. They wanted a king who was a warrior and would lead them into battle. Now, Samuel tried to talk him out of it. For one, he says, you know, if you get a king, you're going to actually be under someone's rule, so that's not going to be as easy as you think it might be. And also, he just challenges them. He says, God is your king. He has shown you time and again that he is powerful, that he will protect you. Really, to ask for a king was to be saying that they were trusting more in a human than in their God. But I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible tells it. Samuel said, God is your king. He's the one who looks after you best. And the people said, We want a real king, one we can see. So God wasn't very happy about it, but he agreed. He agreed to give them a king. So he told Samuel to go and anoint Saul to be the very first king of Israel. Now the Bible tells us that Saul was handsome and tall and strong. It actually says he was a head taller than everybody else. 
He was exactly what the people wanted, a strong warrior. But when Samuel made him king, he made it very clear to him, Saul, first and foremost, you are to be obedient to God. You are to listen to God and do as he commands. Now, things didn't start off that poorly with Saul. He was a pretty good king at first. But over time, his heart changed. He got really arrogant, especially about the military victories. He started to disobey God. And then, when he got called out on it, he would make excuses. He'd minimize the disobedience. In fact, at one point, he even kind of used God as his justification for disobedience, saying he hadn't killed this particular group of animals he was supposed to destroy because he was going to use them for sacrifices. And God said, that's not what I asked you to do. Saul proved something important. Saul proved that a person can have good characteristics without having good character. And finally, God had enough and rejected him as king. So that brings us to our story today. Imagine how Samuel must be feeling. He has an enormous responsibility in front of him. God has rejected Saul and told Samuel to go anoint a new king. Now Samuel knows if Saul catches wind of this, he's going to kill him. This is in no way a safe mission. And I can imagine Samuel is starting to really question his ability to hear God. I mean, after all, God had told him to anoint Saul. And that ended up being really kind of a disaster. So I'm sure he's asking himself, did I hear God right the first time? And now he's sending me to Bethlehem, that tiny town? How will I know? How will I really know if I'm going to the right place and if I'm finding the right person? How will I know who's going to be a good king? But Samuel obeys, and he goes off to Bethlehem and to Jesse's house. He shows up, and he sees that there's seven tall, strong sons. So he's thinking, whew, all right, these guys all look kingly enough. So Jesse sends the first one past. God says, nope. Next one, nope, not him. And one by one, not him, or him, or him, or him, or him. At this point, Samuel's probably sweating. His heart's probably racing a little bit. Okay, so I'm at Jesse's house. I've looked at all the sons. God said no. Is there anybody else? And Jesse laughs and says, well, yeah, there's David. But he's, he's out in the field. He's a shepherd. He's the youngest. Samuel says, okay, call him. And so David comes, and God says, yep, that's the one anoint him. Samuel honestly was probably thinking, God, you have got to be kidding me. Now, the Bible does say that David had a fine appearance, that he had some handsome features, but he's a shepherd. Shepherds at this point in time were pretty much the lowest in society. Now, it hadn't always been that way. 
actually some of the fathers of the faith were shepherds. Abraham, Jacob, Moses. And sheep were considered valuable. I mean, they were used for their meat, for their milk, for their wool, um, and lambs were used for sacrifices. But as the people had settled in the land, they had established more communities and farms and were growing crops. And so suddenly, the sheep were kind of becoming a nuisance. They were eating the crops. They were making messes. And so they had really pushed the sheep up into the more mountainous, rugged areas. And then shepherds were expected to go and kind of move the flocks around to find water, to find food. Generally, the shepherds ended up being the youngest one of the family, the one that didn't have enough strength to help with the harder farming work. The other thing to know about shepherds is that they were really considered pretty dirty. They spent time walking on mountainous trails where there was a lot of animal excrement, And as part of their job, they had to deal with other animals and sometimes had to touch dead animals. And so even as time went on, there came a point where shepherds were not even allowed in the temple because they were considered so unclean. And so here Samuel stands being instructed to anoint David, a young shepherd, to be the next king. This decision is incredibly important. And nothing about this choice makes sense. This is definitely not the kind of warrior king the people want. But God is saying that what is important is not the outward appearance, but the heart. Now this message is not really about middle school elections and not really even about the anointing of kings. But I think this text today shows us something really important. What the world values is different than what God values. There are some Bible verses that I think are worth committing to memory. And I think 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 is one of those. It says, people look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, there's a lot of connections we could make from here to our lives today. But I want to just give us maybe three big questions that we could take home and think about. David was known as a man after God's own heart. So here's some questions. What does a heart following after God look like? What does God see when he sees our hearts? And third, what do we value in others, especially our leaders? So let's start with the first one. What does a heart following after God look like? A great place to start is the book of 1 John. Now that book was written to some young churches that were struggling because there were false teachers coming among them, maybe fake Christians, so to speak. And so the people who were kind of young believers themselves We're just struggling to know, how do we know who to trust? How do we know who a true Christian is? Or what does authentic faith look like? And so John kind of lays out some things. Here are some things he covers in the book. One, belief in Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. 
Two, sincere repentance for sin. And as we've talked about a lot of times here, repentance is not just about being sorry. It's about actually saying, I did something wrong and I, I want to turn back to God. It's a turning. Another thing John talks about is obedience to God's commands. And then he talks a lot about love for others. I encourage you actually to read the book this week if you have time in your devotion time. It's just five chapters and it's just a really beautiful, beautiful text. Another place we can look to wonder about what does a heart following after God look like is the Apostle Paul's writings on Christian living. In Romans 8, 14, Paul says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So a person that's being led by the Spirit should exhibit some of those characteristics. Now notice in all of this, I'm not saying that to be a heart following after God means to be perfect. As Pastor John talked about last week, all it takes is looking at the law to realize we can never do that. We can never be all those things. And God knew that. David himself greatly sinned while he was king. But the difference between Saul and David is that David was repentant. He turned his heart back to God. And he understood the magnitude of God's forgiveness and grace. If you read through the Psalms, you can see David's heart just pouring out praises and thanksgiving to God for the work of his forgiveness. Now some hard questions for ourselves. What does God see when he looks at our hearts? Does he see a heart like stone or a heart like flesh? Are we repentant when we sin? Are we sorry for when we mess up and bring it before God and make the turn? Are we truly grateful for God's grace and forgiveness? Do our lives reflect the kind of obedience that God asks of us? Is the work of the Spirit evident in us? Would people say that the fruits of the Spirit are part of our character? Do we love people as Jesus asked us to love? And finally, let's talk about the third big question. What do we value in others, especially our leaders? Do we care more about outward appearances or about the heart? Kids, I want to talk to you guys specifically for a few minutes. It's almost time for school to start again, so that means you guys are going to be back in class with a bunch of different kinds of kids, right? Who can tell me who this guy is? Just say it out if you know. Augie. Yeah, I heard someone say Augie. So this is Augie from the movie Wonder. Augie was born with severe facial abnormalities. And when he had to start going to a new school in fifth grade, 
it was really, really hard. Kids picked on him, made fun of him, avoided him. Nobody wanted to be his friend. But what did they eventually learn? They learned that Augie had an amazing heart, that he was kind and funny and a really good friend. So kids, I want to ask you, what's most important to you about other kids? Do you try to be friends with kids because they're popular, powerful, maybe funny? Or do you look for friends who are honest and kind? Friends who will help you to be a better person and a better friend? This year, I want to encourage you as you go to school to see past the outward appearance and to look for the heart. And if you're a Harry Potter fan, maybe this is a way to remember it. Now, Harry had just regular glasses, right? He saw the same way as everybody else. Who knows whose these are? Luna! Yes, Luna Lovegood did not wear regular glasses. She wore Spectrospecs. Spectrospecs. Thank you, Lauren. These came from her uh, dress-up box. Now, Luna could see things about people that nobody else could see, right? So when you go back to school this year, I want you to think about wearing God's spectaspects to try to see things about people that maybe other people don't see. And now, adults, it's our turn. What do we value in people? Who are we following and why? At work, do we try to get in with the powerful people, the ones who can help us get ahead? Do we tend to respect and trust leaders because they look like good leaders or because they really are good leaders? And on the flip side, do we discriminate against people, maybe even subconsciously, because they don't have the characteristics of what the world values? Who do we see as our spiritual leaders? We are living in a celebrity culture here in the U.S. And that mentality certainly infiltrates the church, too. Churches love to follow charismatic, inspiring leaders. It feels good to follow people like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with ministry leaders and pastors having good leadership skills. But sometimes the spiritual giants among us are people like LaVey, whose faith has been tested through the fire. Sometimes it's the people who quietly study their scripture every day, the diligent prayer warriors, the oldest people among us who have a lifetime of wisdom to share. And then finally, I think this text invites us to consider what we're looking for in our civil leaders. So here's maybe just a few questions we can ask ourselves. Is this person someone with good characteristics, but not good character? If this person professes to be a Christian, is there evidence of the fruits of the Spirit? 
in this person's life? Does there seem to be a heart that's willing to be repentant and obedient to God? And how does this person's stance on different issues align with the teachings of Jesus? And I think this text invites us to consider who we're trusting in. Israel chose to put their trust in an earthly king, not their heavenly king. And it's really easy for us to look back on them and think, why didn't you just trust God? But if we're honest with ourselves, we're not so unlike the people of ancient Israel. In the 1980s, we worried a lot about national security. And we still worry about national security. Are we putting our ultimate trust in public officials and policies or in the God who holds the whole world in his hands? A thousand years after David, Israel was still looking for a military king. The oppressors weren't the Philistines anymore. Now they were the Romans. But God knew they needed a different kind of king. They needed a different kind of rescue. A thousand years after David was anointed in Bethlehem, another baby boy was born. The news of the birth first came to some shepherds out in the hills, the dirty outcasts of society, the ones too unclean for the temple. The angel said, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This tiny king was the anointed one, the very son of God. He was not a boy following after God's heart. He was a piece of God's heart itself. And so we're going to come to the table today remembering that this king, Jesus, this anointed one, came not to be what the world expected and wanted of a king. But he came to humble himself, even to the bitter and shameful death on the cross. He was the great shepherd who laid down his life for us, his sheep. And we also come to this table knowing that he conquered death. He is alive again today. He's still our king And so we come to the table to commune with him, knowing that he is with us, still loving us, still leading us. And we come to the table with great hope, knowing that one day our anointed king will come again and his kingdom will be fully restored. And in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.